Good morning, noon or night, wherever and whenever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. This is episode 15, recorded on October 11th, 2017. If you like what you're hearing, please think about becoming a patron of the program. That's patreon.com backslash The Shift. If you want to find out more, you can join our Facebook page at The Shift with Doug McKenty. Join the conversation on Twitter at McKenty, or check out our website at theshiftnow.com. My guest on the program today is Catherine Austin Fitz. Catherine, Catherine began her career as a managing director of the Wall Street Investment Bank, Dylan Reed & Company, before moving on to work in the federal government as assistant secretary for the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development under the first Bush administration. After discovering evidence of massive corruption at HUD, Catherine moved on to become president of Hamilton Securities Group, an investment bank and software developer attempting to expose the fraudulent practices endemic to the U.S. mortgage industry to warn consumers about the subsequently engineered financial bubble that ultimately resulted in the crash of 2008. As a result of her persistent attempts to expose the fraud, Hamilton Securities was raided by the FBI and Catherine was subjected to multiple audits and a smear campaign. After fighting to clear her name, Catherine started the Solari Report at Solari.com, helping to educate communities and individuals about financial opportunities in the current corrupt political climate. Despite efforts to silence her voice, Catherine continues to explore government corruption to this day, recently working with Dr. Mark Skidmore to, dis to discover over $21 trillion in unaccounted for budgetary expenditures within the federal government. I am happy... To welcome Catherine Austin Fitz to the program, and thank you for helping to make the shift. Thanks, Catherine. Hi, Doug. It's nice to talk to you and see your beautiful redwood trees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. We're trying to stay out of the fires here on the coast, fortunately, um, but uh, not everyone can be so lucky, so we'll keep our uh, prayers open for them, for sure. Anyway, so that number that um, I threw out there, $21 trillion, that sounds crazy. I, you know, how can $21 trillion go missing? What are we talking about here? And uh, it's funny because you're in California. I remember doing a show on KPFA radio in, I think it was 2002, and warning them that $4 trillion had, it had started in fiscal 1998, and I said $4 trillion. And the, and the host of the show was very skeptical, and... Later that week, he did a show with the wonderful Cynthia McKinney, and she confirmed she was a sitting congresswoman. Oh, yes, there's four trillion. Well, boom, off we went. And now it's continued. Cynthia was very brave in trying to do something about it when she was in Congress. She left. Uh, Kucinich, Dennis Kucinich tried to do something about it, um, but it continued. And then, of course, 9-11 really, you know, the, the laws in 9-11 really protected the non-accountability of financial uh, financial disclosure. And sure enough, uh, if you add it all up, we just did a search and identified everything since then. I had written an article about $6.5 trillion going missing from DOD in, um, in fiscal 2015. And Dr. Mark Skidmore, who's a chair, uh, professor, full professor of state and local government at, the, um, uh, at Michigan State University, did a uh, uh, heard me and said, you know, that can't be right. She's got to be wrong. So he decided he would prove me wrong, dug into the documents and realized, oh, my goodness, she's right. And then called me and said, offered to get his graduate students to take a look at, you know, what had been do a thorough audit of everything since fiscal 1998 to date. 
And what they found, just at DOD and HUD alone, that's the only two agencies they've audited, uh, it's now up to $21 trillion of undocumentable adjustments. Now, what that means, Doug, is they're having transactions that they can't document, can't explain, and the books never get balanced. Now, if, if you look at the numbers during that period, it's about two and a half, almost three times the budget of DOD and HUD during that period. So this is, I mean, this is, imagine for a second that you went to a church and you went to your church business meeting and, and your church had a budget every year of 500,000 and every year they had more than double uh, their budget in undocumentable adjustments that they couldn't explain. What would you say as a member of the congregation? Oh, well, don't worry. try your best next year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it is almost amazing that people in government, they they can get away with this. I mean, I had, I, I've had this experience. I talk about it a little bit on the show uh, where I was on the board of directors of our local radio station where I had started doing this kind of work, doing interviews. And I started working with them and I found out that it, it was almost as if, I mean, they weren't following any of their board policies or procedures or any of the chart, you know, the corporate charter <laughs> and they were just letting the manager do whatever. And, you know, it's all this nonprofit feel good. It was an NPR station. So as long as it kind of sounded like NPR station, they just got away with it. And I couldn't help but look at this and then extrapolate that out to the federal government and go like, really? I mean, when you're talking about these trillions of dollars, who's doing any oversight? What's happening here? Well, here's the thing. Under the Constitution, uh, a federal agency is not allowed to spend money unless it's envisioned in appropriation, unless it's disclosed. Now, there's certain parts of the budget which are highly confidential, but they are disclosed to the intelligence committees. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, it's restricted information. Um, but the reality is Congress can stop appropriations. So Congress can stop this whenever they want. They have the ability. Now, it's very interesting. In 2001, I tell the story, no, I guess it was 2000, spring 2000, I went to visit the Senate chief of staff uh, to the uh, chairman of the subcommittee that oversees HUD. And I was trying to get my company paid. It was someone I didn't know. Um, But the chairman of that subcommittee is incredibly powerful to the appropriation process. So I said, uh, they said, what do you think is going on at HUD? And I said, I don't know. What do you think is going on at HUD? And they looked me dead in the eye and said, HUD is being run as a criminal enterprise. Yeah. Now, you can't run HUD as a criminal enterprise unless the New York Fed, the New York Fed member banks, the Treasury Department, the Department of Justice help you consciously, intentionally, and a couple of defense contractors help you consciously to do that. So, um, you know, it was a very significant statement on their part, but they uh, voted out an appropriation a month or two later with a very significant increase in annual appropriations for HUD. So, I mean, the, the reality is there is, there is uh, you know, a cycle going on between the executive uh, branch of the government and the Congress where they are consistently operating outside of the Constitution and the financial management laws. We're now talking, Doug, about amount of undocumented adjustments that is greater than the outstanding debt of the federal government. Right. So think of it this way. The Federal Reserve prints money. Uh, they give it to the, to the federal government in exchange for treasuries. And then the money disappears out the back door. And now basically Congress and, and the executive branch is turning around to you, Doug, and saying, well, you know something, we have $21 trillion of debt. And so 
um, you know, your base, you and your property are basically collateral for that right. money. <laughs> so my my void is, well, wait a minute. There's 21 trillion of undocumentable transactions not explained. Let's take 21 trillion of the assets of the people who affected those illegal transactions and let's put that back on the table before you take my property. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's amazing that there's just so little accountability going on in the way that the system functions right now. And so, well, first of all, I mean, let's just talk about the fact that so many Americans don't understand this. Um, you know, this is something I wanted to get in with you. I'm doing more and more of these kinds of interviews. And, you know, especially when I, for the first, say, five or six interviews, I, I often would just choose independent media outlets because, you know, people like yourself, I mean, you're trying to get the word out, but the mainstream media and the corporate media, they're not even touching this or talking about solutions. And so the vast majority of inf of Americans really have no idea the extent of the problem, what's going on, how the monetary system works. Um, I, I, actually, I disagree with that. Uh-huh. I think the majority of people who watch um, that media want a view of the world you know, it's a little bit like Disney World. There's this very, you know, uh, chipper world above ground. And then you've got a whole world of people planning and operating and sort of engineering things below ground. So yeah. you have two worlds. They're parallel worlds. So we'll call one the overt and the other covert. And most people take the position, uh, you know, I want my check. You send me my check and uh, and I won't ask questions. And that's, you know, we, we have between the leadership and the general population, we've sort of brokered a, a truce around, I get my check and I don't ask questions. Right. That is, I mean, I think that's the, that's the corruption that we're talking about, that so many people are willing to sort of like, they get that paycheck. And, and yet, I mean, what's happening right now is less and less people are getting that paycheck. I think that there's got to be a lot more disgruntled you know, individuals out there. I think maybe that's why the alternative media is getting more and more popular because right. people aren't right. making, they're not getting a big enough piece of the pie to get bought off. And they're starting to see more and more how that covert layer is actually functioning, you right. know? Right. So, so you have a percentage of people who didn't want to know either because you've got to change, you know, it's a little bit like having a computer and you've got 50 databases in an operating system, and somebody comes along and says, I have a new database for you, so you have to change your whole operating system and redo all your databases because you've got to load in a new operating system, and you're like, wait, I'm too busy. I just live without that database, right? right? So, you know, and the reality is when does it, that's what paradigms are, when does it pay for you to change your operating system, update your databases, because you're better off if you do. Yeah. That's what the idea of the shift is all about. I mean, that's why I'm doing this show is to say, hey, you know, this this operating system's not working anymore. And here right. is the, you know, here's the new paradigm that if you hold on to it, this can function better, you know, as we move forward from where we're at now. Right. So I, I would say it this way. We need, there are lots of new models about how an individual functions in this world or how a community functions in this world or how you build a business in this world. And we're kind of prototyping them. And we're in a the thing that makes it so uncomfortable, we're in a prototype phase. So it's not like we figured out the, all the models yet. <laughs> right. Absolutely. I know I'm feeling that way. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, even just trying to figure out the interviews to do and how to kind of breach uh, these topics with people so that maybe they're open-minded enough to hear uh, what's going on, much less to hear than the solutions, you know, to really take the problem to understand how big the problem, I mean, this problem is $21 trillion big, right? This is huge. It's ridiculously no, it's huge. That. That's just the missing money. <laughs> sure. Right. I know. Right. <laughs> so I, let me just sympathize with you for a second. Okay. Because I grew up in a world where if you were someone like me, there were only 20 people in the world that you would talk about money with and you would never talk about the press and you wanted your name to, you wanted no one to know your name or ever hear about you. You know, you were part of the sneak around crew. So in the, in the first Bush administration, I had a dreadful experience with the New York times. And then in the second administration, I had, I mean, in the Clinton administration, I had a, a worse experience with the Washington post. And I'm sure if I got a top litigator to sit down and go through it, they both broke the law. And But it was so infuriating. I said, after the Washington Post, I said, I'm never speaking to corporate media again. Yeah. Ever. <laughs> and what I'm going to do is I'm going to answer questions. That's all I'm going to do. Well, the first time I had to get on a radio and talk to an audience of millions about money, Doug, I was just, it was so painful. And then, you know, I went from there and I got so many questions. Finally, I had to start a business answering the questions. That's the Solaria report. But it it came out of the fact that there was no media trying to do what you're doing. And that's why it feels uncomfortable because we're inventing it. Right. Right. Yeah, it's so interesting just to try to figure out even, you know, for people that aren't informed, you know, how do you educate uh, uh, about especially things as complex as the banking system. I mean, one of the ways that these criminals get away with it is that these systems are so complicated and what they're doing is so behind the scenes that it, it takes a little bit of an effort uh, to sit people down and to explain to an audience, you know, this is how the financial system works and this is how you're getting ripped off by the whole thing. Okay. Here's the secret, because this is where I've been working on this exact question of the banks sure. for 20 years and I think I've got it nailed. All right, let's so hear it. Go. I'm dealing with this incredible mortgage corruption at HUD and the New York Fed member banks. And I, I'm just appalled at what's going on. And I start to write a check on my checking account at JP Morgan Private Banking. And I'm in the middle of the check and I froze and I realized, why am I financing the people who are doing this to me? And then I realized, oh, I have to come clean. I have to get all my money and support and attention out of, you know, I've got to get as far away from the criminals as I can. And I began a process where I had to move both of my companies and me, all my accounts out of, you know, find good, honest local banks and, and get out of, I was in JP Morgan Chase and Citibank and then one regional bank who was as corrupt as the other two. And, and it took right. me two and a half years and then it took me another five years to find a really great community bank. And you know something? One of the most magical things that can happen in your life is to have a great community bank or a great credit union where they know you and you know them and you have a relationship and you can trust them. You can look to them for advice for all sorts of things because they have incredible knowledge about how the money works and sort of how things work in the community and how to make things go. 
And so when you have that relationship, it is magical. It is a magical part of your life. Mm-hmm. And yet for many, many years in 2004, I did a campaign called Where Would Jesus Back? Yeah, right. <laughs> Jesus was the one who got crucified because he threw the money changers out of the temple. So I think he knew what was up. Well, but here's the thing. I've always said, you know how you go into churches and there's this gruesome statue of Jesus, you know, <laughs> hanging from the cross. And what I've always said is that is the subliminal message from the priest saying, this is what happens to you if you mess with our money. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it was called Where Would Jesus Bank? And I tried to persuade everybody, look, if because I, I will tell you, if you go to a big march in Washington, you know, and the politicians are looking out at the crowd. They don't care what you say on your signs as long as you have a J.P. Morgan Chase credit card in your back pocket. Yeah, Do you right. You know what I mean? <laughs> sure. So it's working, and 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 they know that everybody's scholarship comes from more capital gains in the endowment. So the more you know, money goes missing, and they mysteriously pop the stock market. You know, everybody's happy. So, so they're not looking at what you're saying. They're looking at how your money works. So, so one of the things I discovered was that I would talk all day long about the power of voting with your money in the marketplace. People wouldn't change their bank. And it was very funny because I, I ended up a couple of years later with a wonderful host on KPFA radio, giving him all a good time because <laughs> he was banking. In fact, where you're banking. Right. And, and <laughs> his bank and we did it all on the radio show we did a series of shows he moved his bank but what every person says to me who hasn't moved their bank is it's hopeless i'm only one person my i I, my vote doesn't count and what they don't understand is even if that were true which is absolutely not i can explain financial leverage and why your your account your vote is so powerful it means you don't understand the power and magic of having bankers you can trust to care about you and you can have that. You deserve that. So, you know, I, I'll give you an example. I was in Verona this summer, and Verona, uh, we were there to see Beethoven's Ninth in the arena. It was unbelievably beautiful. And there were free concerts in all the cathedrals in Verona that were unbelievable. And we were going from one concert to another, and you're just high on the beauty of the music and the beauty of the cathedrals. And it was just, you know, it was just an incredible experience. And I'm going down the street from one cathedral to another high on the music. And I get a call from my banker and, and they said, okay, your card just charged. This is my bank card, $500 at Disney world Paris. And we know wherever you are, you're not at Disney world. (laughs) (laughs) I said that's fraud. Shut it down. Okay. Boom. Like that. Yeah. That's means to have an incredible local banker who's watching your accounts, who cares about you, you know, and boom, it's fixed in a, in a flat second and I'm off to the next concert. No problem. Now, if I've been banking at one of the big banks I used to bank at, what a nightmare, you know, how much it would have taken a lot of my time, but that comes from having that relationship. So so let me ask you, what do I need to do to persuade you to go find yourself the kind of banker you deserve? Because I know one thing about the banker you have. 
you deserve better. Right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, this is something, I mean, I'm going to be embarrassed all, all of my friends that uh, we've worked, I was explaining to you in, in uh, the public banking coalition and, and getting back into local banking. So I know that I definitely need to do that. And I, and I hear what you're saying. Not only um, is my relationship with a local banker going to go uh, more bang for my buck, but also then my money gets reinvested in the local community, which is, um, you know, that's literally can be worth millions to, you know, everybody else around me. I mean, when the money stays local, then your community is that much more financially sustainable. Uh, and you're not dependent on this huge corporate system to, uh, you know, take pity on your community or to, you know, to, to give you back a fraction of what you've sent to them. Um, so, you know, I hear you. You're preaching to the choir. You have in good local communities and good local uh, uh, credit unions, you have a lot of honest financial people, and they've watched while we all choose the criminals in the marketplace. Yeah. And do you know what that makes them feel like? Sure. You know, because sure. our message to them is you're the loser. We choose them. And one of my favorite comments is crime that pays is crime that stays. So sure. here's the thing. You know, I meet so many great, conscientious, hardworking people who are really working to change the system, and they won't make that leap of changing their banking patterns or changing their spending patterns. And so what I want to know is why? What what's the what's the it's like there's a forest field that says, No, you can't do that. Yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I'll, you know, the reason why we have been slow to change, I'll just say it is because we, you know, if we what if we need to lend money to our son in L.A. or if we need to borrow money from our relative in New Mexico, um, it's just easier to do when we're all a part of one big corporate bank. And, and that is the one thing that has held it held it together. And I you know, it's it's really not that true and it's not really a very good excuse. And that is the one reason why we've. You can have two accounts. Sure. Right. <laughs> I always get people, you know, don't give up your old account until the new one works and you trust it. Yeah. So so take the other one down, open another, make sure it's really working and you can trust it. And if you need this other bank for that one or two functions, then keep it for that. Yeah. But move the majority of your flow. So you're financing, you know, you're leveraging the, the criminals a dollar, but you're leveraging the good guy a hundred dollars. See what I mean? Well, I'd like to I'd like to get back to this actually towards the end of the interview, but for now let's focus continue to focus on what is criminal about uh, about the big banking system. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you call the tapeworm economy and also your description of Mr. Global? Because I think this is what we're finding is that our local communities via the banking system and I know you know like my county when your when your local governments are banking with these big guys then it's like a big oh, vacuum yeah. cleaner all your tax money yes, also absolutely. gets hoovered up into Mr. Global you know and it's not coming back into well, our pockets you're in California and California tried when they were having budget problems a couple of years ago they tried to issue a script and uh, JP Morgan Chase walked you know blocked them and so they had to do a borrowing at usurious rates from J.P. Morgan Chase, who I'm sure made a fortune on the fees. Yeah, yeah. You know, so thank you, J.P. Morgan. Um, so so how, how do you want to go about this? So here's, 
here, so we talked about the Constitution and the fact that Congress and the executive branch are operating the federal budget out outside of the law. Mm-hmm. Now, part of the challenge, not all of it, but part of it is what we call the black budget. In 1947, we passed the National Security Act, and that created, along with the CIA Act in 1949, the ability to take money that was appropriated to some agencies and move it into others. And that, in combination with the Exchange Stabilization Fund, gave the government power to to manipulate or sort of intervene in the financial markets in what I would call lots of creative ways. Now, what I also believe at the same time we opened our markets to narcotics trafficking, and I believe the government accounts have been used to launder some of that money, certainly HUD has. And, you know, so, so we created this thing called the black budget. At the same time we created the black budget, we took the money that was seized from the Japanese and the Germans at the end of the war and we created a hidden pool of money. Um, Joseph Farrell uh, refers to it as the hidden system of finance. And that was totally private, whereas the black budget was governmental. So you have, uh, now what we believe is, if you, if you look at who was put in charge of that money, it was the intelligence agencies, which essentially between the 47 and the 49 act, and the hidden pool uh, or the hidden system of finance literally turned them overnight into the most powerful secret banker in the world. Okay. Now then something happened at the beginning of the Bush administration that dramatically accelerated the power of the system. And that was um, by executive order when, when Reagan ran with Bush, the agreement was that Bush's vice president would run the National Security Council, the enforcement agencies and the intelligence agencies, him having been head director of the CIA. They promulgated an executive order that said, we may use, um, or, or we may have government contractors, so banks and defense contractors, essentially, a lot of technology companies, we may have them do classified projects. And that, in addition to the two things, you know, everything we've described to date, put in a place where you could funnel a near infinite amount of government financed and secret money into private corporations. Um, And not just the money, but the assets, including black technology. So, you know, the most valuable asset that the government has is that technology. And so basically you, you created a mechanism for secret privatization, which had near infinite, you know, money behind it. And when you combine that with the federal credit mechanism, now you're talking about real trouble. And that's when the fraud, the Iran-Contra fraud started to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, That was the 80s, Um, but we didn't have derivatives then. And so we came back in the 90s and did it again, but this time with derivatives and ended up with bailouts that were almost three times, um, you know, what, what could have retired all the residential single-family mortgages in the country. So that's pretty amazing level of fraud. Yeah, well, it's actually, it's outrageous. I mean, you're seeing that somebody or some group or some organization that is behind these intelligence agencies uh, are responsible essentially for making the money and then have created a mechanism to launder essentially unlimited funds using the government through this mechanism. Um, 
it, it's it's almost unfathomable. And then you start to see through all these you know these different budgets of these different agencies, you know, trillions of dollars going missing down this black hole. Well, when I, it's interesting. When I was an assistant secretary of housing, and then after I left assistant secretary, my company several years later got hired back on competitive bid to be the lead financial advisor and portfolio strategist for FHA at HUD. When uh, I'll give you an example. In 1995, a mortgage banker from New York came to see me, and Doug, it was an amazing experience. He walked in, and he worked very hard to get the appointment, and in fact, had been very aggressive coming through one of the senator's offices, and so finally I agreed to see him, and he walked in, and he had a pile of paper that would go from your floor halfway to your ceiling, and you know, it was almost he almost needed a wheelbarrow to bring it in. And he sits down and he says, my family's had a mortgage banking operation in Long Island, you know, since 1934 when FHA was started. And our core competency is we track every FHA mortgage in the market and every related security. So a, a lot of mortgages are securitized or related to collateral. And he said, I brought you a copy of my database. And he said, there's been a terrible mistake. We had worked very hard in the first Bush administration to get a law passed requiring financial statements. And so he said the first financial statement had come out. And he said there's a terrible mistake in these financial statements. They say the amount of outstanding mortgage insurance in force is $400 billion. It's many multiples of that. Here, I brought you my database. He starts to push the paper. And wow. I was like, no, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Talk about not wanting to change your operating system because what he was saying was that the U.S. Treasury and the New York Fed was engaged in massive, massive securities fraud with the help of all the New York Fed member banks, the Treasury, the Department of Justice. I thought the guy was absolutely nuts. All I wanted to do was get him out of the office because I thought he was crazy. Right. I thought he was crazy. Now, he didn't look crazy. He looked like, you you know, he looked like a very serious guy. Sure. So, so. But later, when forced to by the litigation, I went back and my attorneys made me uh, record all my recollections of working in the Bush administration, which I did. And I went unpacked and then started to research all the fraudulent patterns and try and figure out what was going on. And it took me many years of literally researching mortgage fraud and HUD fraud to come to the conclusion I probably saved my life by refusing the database. <laughs> if I had integrated the database and integrated it with my databases, I would probably, <laughs> you know. That would have been over the top. Yeah. Wow. You know, it's really funny that when we, when we were going in to get the mortgage files for uh, the West of the Mississippi loan sale at HUD, we were going into the, they were in the Murrow building. I remember saying to somebody, you know, I'm a little worried about this because all the Clinton and Bush family mortgage fraud may be in those files or some of them, mm -hmm. you know, so I'm thinking this is a little dangerous and sure enough, the building blew up before we got. To the oh, wow. Yeah. There, I mean, it's an unbelievable pack. I always tell people do not get a job around databases related to mortgage or, <laughs> or government securities, financial fraud, because those buildings tend to blow up. <laughs> right. you know, there, if, if you look at the zip codes, that have very serious single-family mortgage fraud, they are much more likely to experience arson and fires. So, Right, uh, wow. 
Yeah, it's a real it's a real deal. I mean, it's a real game, and it's and the people that are playing it are very serious. You you call it uh, the what's the term that you've used? The invisible war. Um, that's really going on between these people, uh, some group of people that are sort of managing this, and the rest of us, and most people don't even know that it's going on, but it's very serious. Um, right. Well, they're, they're trying to manage it, and then they're trying to manage the liabilities. They're trying to manage the cash flows and keep the cash flows working, but then they're trying to keep the criminal liabilities from creating trouble. So, for example, you know, when we had the housing bubble in the 90s, we we had a bad bank solution. We basically put all the paper and auctioned it off. You notice they didn't do that this time, mm-hmm. and that's because they didn't want to share what was in the files. <laughs> right. Right. Well, so I don't want to talk about this too much, but I think that we should touch on it just a little bit, um, just to just to let the audience kind of understand maybe what the bigger picture is, because one of the things that you're talking about are these. So a lot of this money goes into funding these black ops and then these black technologies that they're developing. And I think everybody knows that the government or the Department of Defense and these defense contractors are working on classified technologies that the rest of us aren't allowed to know about. And then there's all of this money that seems to be going down this black hole. So some people like Dr. Farrell, who you've worked with, I mean, they've discussed this as a breakaway civilization, that there's actually whoever this group is, these organized criminals that are putting this whole thing together are uh, now capable of doing things technologically that the rest of us aren't even participating in. We're not even a part of it. Can you just touch on this a little bit? Like, what's yes. the end game? You know, what are they doing with all of this? I, I can't tell you. What I can tell you is you have now financed, you have now stolen enough money to create an endowment that can finance a global government on a dividend and interest basis. Mm-hmm. So in theory, well, let me tell you the different theories of where this money might have gone. One is to create a global endowment. Okay, so think of this as privatization on the just do it method. You know, you shift enough money out of the government, lever it up. You know, so you have your new system, I call it global 3.0. You have your old system, global 2.0. You suck all the assets out of, you know, you look at 2.0 and you say, uh-oh, you know, the, the boomers have been putting money in the kitty for 30 years, and now that they're retiring, they're going to want their money back. So before we pay for nursing homes, let's just take all the money and put it over here in 3.0, and we can use it to finance all these great things. But you leave the liabilities in 2.0, and then you turn to everybody in 2.0, and you say, well, you know, Doug, there's no money, and so you're going to have to be responsible and find a way to cut back, or you know, you're going to have to just walk into the woods, no nursing home for you, et cetera. Yeah. <laughs> right. We can't afford health care, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so you tell everybody, okay, over here in 2.0, there's no money. Over here in 3.0, you're going like, let's go to Mars, you know, and, and, and this is going gangbuster because the investment is near infinite. So 3.0, it's rising with lots of new technology. And 2.0 is sort of dying on the vine. So this is Amazon and this is Sears, you know, dying on the vine. Sure. So so part of it is that. But let's look at the options. One is um, you want to globalize and invest money globally in the emerging markets. So emerging markets is one or two. I started with endowment. So endowment is one. Emerging markets is two. We spent an absolute fortune. It's wrong to say America hasn't had an infrastructure a program where we spend an absolute fortune on underground facilities, bases, and transportation. 
Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we are just like Disney World. We've got a whole thing going underground, just like Disney World. I did a great Solera report with Richard Dolan on Underground Basis, who's published a lot of Richard Souter's books. Um, and so Underground Basis is another, and Under Ocean Basis. So we're talking about significant global military infrastructure. And then um, if you look at what happened when Kennedy was assassinated and what percentage of the GMP went to the NASA space budget, um, it's been declining. I think we held a constant. We just took it black. Mm-hmm, right. So that's what Joseph or Richard would call the secret space program. So I think we continued a similar commitment to space. We just took it secret. And so that's the secret space program. Now, in all of those things, whether it's the black budget, whether it's um, some of the things we've been doing to enforce Remember, when you're an investor, you never move money to a place unless you can enforce. So we're not going to mobilize the economy unless our satellite surveillance, our Navy, and all our other military capacity gives us the ability to enforce the contracts. So, you know, if you study the build out of the West, the money came, but so did Pinkerton. Right. (laughs) So, so. So the question, I think, because part of what made globalization possible was the global satellite system. And, of course, big question is, what is the invisible space weaponry and what is the surveillance that went went with it? And what are some of the secret technologies? So we have the Secretary of Defense in 1998 saying that we have the capacity to wage war and make it look like natural disasters. Yeah, Absolutely. I sort of see this system as a continuance of uh, colonization. Uh, maybe you can answer these two questions at the same time then, because I wanted to try to get into who are the actors that are that are doing this. I, I think I saw I saw an interview of you uh, describing way back when you were doing investment banking on Wall Street. One of your um, co-workers you, was saying something about the Rothschilds making a, uh, a decision for your firm. And you were like, well, the Rothschilds aren't here. They're not on our board of directors. How are they affecting? How can they make decisions for what our firm is doing? And he was like, well, you don't know. <laughs> yeah, the partners own the stock. So yeah. we at the time, we uh, the firm I was with, made, we made a lot of money in the markets, but we made more money buying and selling ourselves three times. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time, the partners owned the equity of the firm. And so uh, a wonderful, wonderful uh, fellow fellow colleague at Dylan Reed, um, who was very knowledgeable. He, he was much more knowledgeable about the system, having grown up in a much more uh, investment banking plug-in family than mm, mine. Right. Uh, he, I said to him, we had a new president. I said, you know, uh, John is a very odd choice for Nick. Nick was the chairman. I said, John's a very odd choice. You know, he's not, he's not a Brady kind of guy. And he looked, he said, he's not a Brady man. He's a Rothschild man. And I said, (laughs) what do the Rothschilds have to do with us? We own the firm. And he looked at me like, you know, he had that look on his face and I used to see it, it, it. And that look said, I knew we shouldn't have made a woman a partner. They can never get it. They are so stupid. And he just walked off. I mean, he wouldn't even touch it. It was just wow. like, you fool. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that, <laughs> that that our policies were determined by, and our, our you know, our choice of president was determined by the Rothschilds, not by us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's crazy. 
So how then how does this like what is the history of this? I guess what I'd like to hear from you is like what is the lineage of this system then? I mean, if this goes the Rush the Rothschilds have been doing this since 1750 or so controlling the central banking markets and then now we had this sort of robber baron these families. I mean, you even brought up your friend's family like it seems like certain families are involved in in this system and they're in the know and then the rest of us are sort of like working for them and we don't even know what's going on, you know, we're outside of it. So I, I would say it differently because I think, you know, stories like that seem to make it very simplistic. I don't think it's simplistic. I think it's okay. very organic. And in my experience, you know, the world, uh, you asked me who Mr. Global is. And right. Mr. Global is my metaphor. Um, I got this idea. If you want to understand the world, one of the best sources of information to understand the world is John Rappaport's interviews. For many years, he did interviews and gave people anonymity. And when he gave them anonymity, they were former insiders, usually retired, and then they would tell all. But John would really try and unpack the nuts and bolts of how control is engineered. It's absolutely fascinating. And I've read every one he ever wrote. I've never, I've never found an imperfection or an incorrection. They, they align perfectly with my experience. Anyway, he interviewed a guy who I believe was probably head of or did PR for the executive committee of the Council on Foreign Relations, is my guess. Mm -hmm. And the executive committee, in my experience, is very different than the general membership um, in terms of knowledge. Anyway, but but his, so his pseudonym was Ellis Metavoy. And at one point, John says is he's he's digging in on how they would manipulate you know, and sell people on a fake story. And Ellis said, well, you have to make it simple. So we would take a phenomena like terrorism and we would create a name for the phenomena, but make it out like it's an organization. So I think John once wrote that the database at the Department of Justice when 9-11 happened of all known terrorists was called Al-Qaeda. Mm -hmm. So right. suddenly you make it sound like it's a real organization. It's got bylaws. It's got a charter. You know, it's got a board of directors. <laughs> right. It's a phenomenon, but you're trying to make it understandable for people. And I thought, well, that's a very clever technique. One of my greatest frustrations is you and I live on a planet where the governance structure is invisible and we're walking around. You know, it's like being a symphony or orchestra playing in the dark. We don't understand how the system works. Mm -hmm. And so in my experience, the system was very much run by committees and consensus and over, you know, it was very centralized. You, you work through the different financial bureaucracies, the banks, the insurance companies, the central banks. And, you know, because you, you've got to you need your banking function to work, but you need your risk function to work insurance. And then you've got the central banks and the, the tre government treasury. So all these things go up and at the very top, it's pools of intergenerational capital. So family wealth, so the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, and they collaborate and compete and coordinate and collaborate and compete. And over time, you know, they've been collaborating, competing more and more central control. And life at the top is dangerous and risky, but it's also very rewarding if you're successful at it. And it very much works according to committees. And so finally, it got very difficult to communicate about something that was that unclear and uncertain. So um, uh, uh, another firm and I invented this cartoon or this concept of a, 
a guy named Mr. Global whose body was in a in a globe and had little arms and he smoked a cigar and he flew around the world commanding everything, you know. Right, yeah. It, it was really a metaphor for the committee, you know, or, or the, the sort of higher echelon committees. Sure. Now, it, it's making it out to be a single person. Maybe it is a single person or not. I don't, you know, I, I don't know because it's invisible. But it's a metaphor so that we can talk about you know, the government the, or the, the top of the governance echelon quickly. So I call it Mr. Global. Well, what we do know for sure, and you use that word control. I mean, that is to me, when I'm looking at, say, you, you know, what do I find is the ultimate problem with our political system, with our economic system, and what is the world that I would rather live in? And then I say to myself, well, I'd rather live in a free society that has transparency and what we're seeing is, like you're talking about, we don't, nobody really knows what's going on at the top of this pyramid because they don't let us know. It's, it's hidden. It's secret. And well, a lot of the people who are doing things are trying to keep it secret because they don't want to, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with multiple criminal enterprises, it's dangerous. And so yeah. you're sneaking around. I mean, it's funny because I didn't know until I started to speak publicly that conspiracies were bad things. I had been brought up to believe that conspiracies were the basic mechanism by which anything got done in the world. So sure. if you wanted, <laughs> you know, so of conspiracy was, was a good thing, you know, and it was fun and, you know, you did it and it made the world work and that's. If you wanted to take action, you had to create a group of people and you had to create a plan and you had to create a picture and then you had to implement it. And if it worked, yay, you were great. Right. I mean, I, I give you a perfect example because they, you know, they could be silly little things. The chief of staff to one of the top communications, the chairman of one of the top communications uh, had been a government official and then went to the private and he called me, it was 1988, I was sitting in my office, I'm a partner, Dylan Reed, and he, he called me and he said, you know, such and such person who's a private, very prestigious person is going to do the following thing. He was going to make a real estate development and it was really going to hurt the local people and the local community. It was really a nasty thing to do. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, he said, I just found out, here's how it's going to do. And he said, you want to get together and stop him? <laughs> <laughs> right, so, nice. That's, you know, and so we got some other people in the conspiracy and we kind of, you know, the goal is to, to muck it up, but make it invisible. So he can't tell who did it because otherwise you got problems. Sure. Um, I'll give another example where I, I should have been more invisible. Uh, at the beginning of the Bush administration, a, a guy at, at the senior part of the MTA agency called me and said, uh, they're going to put... Uh, Oh, no, 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 no. I found out that they were going to put somebody in his undersecretary who uh, who was really, they would not have been happy with. So I called him and warned him and they could put their lobbyists to work and get him bounced. Well, the guy bounces over to become the undersecretary of HUD where I'm working. I have to deal with him and he knows I got him bounced from DOT. So right. <laughs> you, know, you have to be very careful. <laughs> well, you what have happened? to be very careful. What? what happened at the Hamilton Securities Group then? I mean, that you were just you were being a little too out in the open with that, huh? They wanted to shut that down. Well, here's what's interesting. I was trying to figure out how you could basically finance private communities with equity and 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 
facilitate, think of it as currencies and stock exchange for local communities that would significantly increase wealth with a focus on making a lot of money for the pension funds. We were worried that the pension funds couldn't make their returns sufficient so that you could really meet their obligations. And so it was incredible. One of the things I discovered, I built a software tool that would allow me to look at and optimize government investment by place. And one of the things I found, Doug, was that the government money had a negative return on investment. So, for example, I always tell the fees for our friends story where I found communities where we were paying 250, HUD was paying 250,000 uh, per unit to do public housing when 50,000 would buy and rehab a single family home in the FHA portfolio. And I went to the assistant of the person who ran the program and I said, look, if we re-optimize within a county, so we just optimize the, the dollars within a county, we can get five homes for the price of one. And she looked at me, honest woman that she was, and she said, but how would we generate fees for our friends? <laughs> right. So I said, can't you just cut your your friends a check for 50000 and you know, then we could get three homes instead of one. Right. But I mean, the, <laughs> so so what I discovered was if you re-optimize the government money by place, there was an incredible opportunity to radically reduce the amount of money taxpayers need to fund. But of course, it would cut out all these intermediaries, including, you know, intermediaries who were feeding the black budget. And, you know, it would right. cut out a tremendous amount of the mortgage fraud. And so um, now... I thought I had establishment approval to, to be doing what I was doing. And I made the mistake of believing if they wanted me to stop, I would be told. And I, you know, and I would find a way to, I wasn't trying to buck the establishment. I was trying to solve a problem that I thought they wanted solved, which is when the, when the debt game, when the debt growth model is over, how do we help these neighborhoods be financially successful with little or no government money? So I thought I was doing my job. I didn't think I was cross. And that's why when I got hit with a litigation, I thought, okay, well, we'll just find a quickie political fix. I must have offended somebody. I didn't understand what the problem was. And then when I realized the extent of the bubble they were planning on having, um, I, I had two problems, Doug. One was, uh, you know, you're talking about a scale of fraud that was really going to destroy the country or could destroy the country. But the other thing is, if you look at what they were doing in the African-American communities, mm -hmm. it was no different than what Hitler was doing in the sense you're you're dropping SWAT teams in. You're rounding up innocent people. If they're involved in drugs at all, it's because you're bringing in the drugs and entrapping them. And then you're moving them into prison and and also doing mortgage fraud in their neighborhoods. And uh, and then you move them to prison where you the Department of Justice has a private company that markets their labor to other government agencies. So. They're sitting there making uniforms for the military. Well, that's exactly what Hitler did. He rounded people up. He put them in slave labor camps, and then they worked for the military. So what was the difference? And I really believe that if a society is going to cross that line, um, I, I didn't want to be a member of the establishment in a society that would. I, I just think, you know, I I really feel it's it's very important that we all do what we can to make sure that our tribe our civilization be successful and i really believe that they were going to fail that they were on a pathway that was a failing pathway and i wanted to leave and go into the wilderness and find a better pathway same thing you're doing you know you're saying 
I'm going to do shift because I'm looking for a better pathway. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've got, we've got to be looking for, it's just like you're saying, once you realize how far down the path that they're willing to go, I mean, like Nazi Germany bad <laughs> down the path, then uh, you just right. you gotta just drop it. I mean, like we can figure something out that's better than this, right? I mean, you know, well, you, what you need to do is you need to go back. What what we're talking about economically is a liquidation model. So, you know, whether it's with drugs or pharmaceutical, you know, all the different GMOs, global spring. You're talking about things that liquidate. It liquidates the soil. It liquidates the health. It liquidates, and and if you look at the model that Congress is dealing with. They're trying to manage the federal budget to make the stock market go up. And, and in the process, we've created a win-lose relationship between living things, whether it's people or animals or the environment, and the stock market. And what we need to do, what I was trying to do at Hamilton, was engineer a win-win relationship because we want both of them to go up. We, we want living capital and financial capital to be progressively competing and collaborating to make each other go up. You know, we don't want a win-lose relationship. We don't want corporations going up by harvesting and destroying communities, but we don't want communities going up by harvesting and destroying good companies either. So the question is how we have a serious win-lose relationship between the Dow Jones Index and what I call the Popsicle Index, which is my little indicator for living equity. And what we need to do is get that into a win-win relationship. And, and you know, one of the greatest things – one of the greatest obstacles to change is persuading the whole world, one, that it's hopeless, nothing can be done, but two, you know, the, the alternative to win-lose corporations versus communities is lose-win <laughs> communities versus, do you know what I mean? Oh, let's help communities and destroy corporations. No, that's not going to work either. Right. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I uh, what you're talking about is that we should have an economy that becomes as it becomes more productive, uh, as the economy is functioning, everybody is getting wealthier. Uh, and instead, we have an economy that seems to be sucking the life out of the the lower portions of the pyramid and sending it all to the upper portions of the pyramid. And they're really, I mean, the sad thing is, with all the technology that they're hiding from us now. Like we should all be wealthy. Like there's no reason to have this system of control. Um, I, one of the things right. I was going to say, so we've talked about control. It almost seems to me like, I mean, this, the current system and the people that operate the system, I, you know, they, there must be some kind of a lust for the power and a lust for the control. Um, and, and so they're, you know, they want to take control and they don't want to empower the communities or the individuals. So they're taking that power away from us the solution must be to empower the communities, which is what it sounds like you've been trying to do, you know, to change well, this model. Well, I think the solution is to empower the individual. Mm -hmm. But th there's several different things going on, so it's it's good not to over-simplify, and you, you don't want to say they are bad and we are good, because it doesn't work that way. Right, um, okay. The first thing to understand is technology gives anyone who's successful at applying it incredible power to centralize. Um, if I could recommend two fabulous books on this dynamic, I would recommend uh, The Master Switch by Tim Wu. He's a professor at Columbia, and there's this wonderful period of innovation. Wonderful entrepreneurs get a hold of it and say, 
oh, everybody could be much better off for this. Let's try this, this, this. It kind of gets figured out, and then wham, it all centralizes into one player or two players. You know, the duopoly, McDonald's and Burger King, and mm-hmm. everybody's feeling trouble. And then a new technology comes out. You go through the same process, and it keeps happening throughout history. And when, when Wu describes it, it's what you see is that invisible hand of centralization. So that's number one. Um, number two, Kathy O'Neill has written a book called The Weapons of Math Destruction that show how frighteningly dangerous um, software programs can be, you know, like the MERS system for mortgages uh, Mm -hmm. and how to build assumptions in. It's one thing if you're just doing private financial products, if you're doing, you know, governmental functions, it can be horribly against the best interest and productivity of society. And I will say this, the tech industry has been literally allowed to wreak havoc throughout the society. So we have information systems and software products that have Zippo integrity. They're great for surveillance capitalism and they're great for the NSA, but they're not great for you and me. And they're not economic, as economic as they could be for small business. So Mm -hmm. um, there's a real problem. And of course, the centralizers love it and are subsidizing it. So, um, but those two books really give you a hint of why, you know, it's funny. I was just at a cryptocurrency conference and everybody was running around. It was just like the internet tech bubble in 1997. Oh, this is going to make us free and save the world. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard it. (laughs) Here we go again. I'm putting up, in fact, we're putting up a special Solera report today called Bitcoin, the op. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) And it's the same thing. You're trying to solve a political problem with a financial innovation, and you can't solve a political problem with a financial innovation, particularly a digital one, because control is analog. Control happens by force. Now, there are lots of you know, legal and financial and other more subtle systems in front of it, but ultimately it works by force. Mm-hmm, so yeah. the notion that a financial product on, on information systems that have no integrity within a financial system that has no integrity, within a governance system that has no integrity, is going to somehow make us free. Good luck with that. Sounds great, but not true. So you talk about trying to create a multipolar world, like all these control systems and these centralization systems. I mean, what do you see a, a part of the solution? Makes sense to me that you've got to break down this centralization and allow a, more sovereignty within different localities. I mean, maybe make the city governments more powerful. Think about the old idea of federalism. Make make cities more powerful than states, more powerful than than the feds, so that you know power doesn't just go all the way up to the top of the pyramid. And we we can see it. You know, we have more power in our local communities. Here's the simple thing: there's only you know in politics, life is sequencing. So it's like when you get up in the morning, you want to take a shower before you get dressed. You don't want to take the shower after you get dressed. (laughs) So sequencing is incredibly important. If you look at our system of governance and you read our laws, we have lots of distributed power. The problem is if you violate the Constitution with respect to the war clause and the appropriation clause, you can end up centralizing everything because you can steal all the money on the planet and you can use it to control everybody and everything outside the law. 
Right. It's, I right. used to say it, it's that simple. And, and so this is why I keep coming back to enforcing the appropriation in the war clause. And Cynthia always comes back to, you know, uh, enforcing the war clause. If the people running the government can make war with that end wherever they want and basically assassinate a American citizen whenever they want with no due process anywhere in the world, and they have an infinite amount of money to do that and to develop whatever technology they want, keep it all secret, there is no law. So, so we either enforce the Constitution or we will live in a world where there's no law. And, you know, there are many other solutions. People say, oh, let's have a constitutional convention and reinvent it. Well, all that means is let's go into a room and let the guys who've broken the law for the last 20 years completely rewrite it. Right. And wouldn't just have to do that because, you know, as imperfect as, as the enforcement is, it's the one thing standing between us and the abyss, in my opinion. Now, I love the idea of decentralizing, but if you look at the current mechanisms, we can do tremendous decentralization if we simply enforce the Constitution. It's that simple. Even if they change the Constitution to make it sound prettier uh, in some way, if they're not going to actually enforce it, then what difference does that make? It's still just a, an icing on the cake, if you will, while the, you know, while the people that are breaking the law are still breaking the law. They want to have a constitutional convention so they can rewrite it from scratch. I did a wonderful interview with Edwin Vieira, who's a top constitutional scholar uh, on the Solari Report, and made it public so everybody can have it. And Edwin describes exactly why, if you allow a constitutional convention, whatever restrictions you put on it, they can open it up and tear up the Constitution. So, you know, if 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 we go to a constitutional convention, you know, the second quarter wrap up has a picture of the dollar bill, George Washington, with a big kiss on his forehead or on his cheek, and I say, you know, if you enforce the Constitution or kiss your money goodbye. Yeah. Because here's the question. You you have the federal budget and all the, the obligations. The money's been moved into 3.0, so we've got the $21 trillion or whatever the number is over here, and we've got the obligations, whether it's military pension funds, health care, social security, food stamps, all these obligations over here in 2.0, and the question is, are we going to finance those with your house and your property, or are we going to get the $21 trillion and put it back on the table? Or just abrogate all the obligations? So I just was in Aspen and saw a presentation by an activist running for president who was saying, let's just shred all the obligations. Now, what he was talking about was abruptly stopping 50% of the household incomes in America like that. Mm-hmm and completely imploding the economy, then he suggested, okay, that's, let's privatize everything. Well, then Goldman Sachs is going to be able to buy everything else for pennies on the dollar. It's exactly what we did in Russia. It's called the rape of Russia. Anne Williamson describes it brilliantly. And it's, it's the ultimate in disaster capitalism. So now it's fashionable. Now disaster capitalism is fashionable. And now we are laundering many dollars through bitcoins to people running around the country spouting this stuff. And do you feel like this is the plan actually right now of these people that are investing in what you call the economy, the 3.0 globalization 3.0, are they just going to crash 2.0 then? And they're, and then they're going to buy it all up for pennies on the dollar. (laughs) 
I, I basically think the, you know, that what I heard in Aspen was, uh, you know, they're just throwing paint on the wall and seeing what sticks and what works. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think it's early, but coming in the 2018 campaign in 2020, you have different factions. If you look at the factions in the military and intelligence community who use Trump um, and basically backed him, I think they are concerned that American is too spread out and they want to get into a more conservative posture and make sure North America is fundamentally sound. So I think they are, you know, part of make America great again is to radically reduce risk by stopping some, you know, making sure an implosion doesn't happen. So I think you had two teams, one team that was for implosion, the other that didn't think implosion was such a great idea. Um, But my guess is lots of stuff is being tried. And if you look at what's going on with all these different groups, you know, most of the groups I see out doing things and protesting are financed centrally. They're being paid. You know, unfortunately, I wish young people had better opportunities, but, you know, that's it's their gig. It's part of the gig economy is running around and, and being paid to, to protest. Sure. And it's so hard to even discern real political discourse from this kind of financed, centralized, uh, you know, this this political game that's going on on the news. Um, I mean, I know things like what I've worked on here in Northern California, things like a public banking coalition things that aren't fine. I mean, we, it, the discussions aren't even happening on the mainstream news, you know, the real solutions and the real problems. Um, so yeah, what you're seeing is a kind of this fake, uh, you know, created opposition that's not really facilitating any kind of solutions. Well, here's the thing. If you look at many different policies, Americans have remarkable consensus and that's why divide and conquer the One of the most effective ways of stopping real solutions is divide and conquer. So the most important divide and conquer is turn men against women, but then you want to turn for, you know, so white, black, Hispanic against each other. So, you know, first sex, then race, and then go on from there. Um, You know, I think a lot of the uh, sexual stuff is to make things, you know, unbelievably complicated and get people all worked up about nothing that touches the budget. I mean, if, if you look at all the divide and conquer issues, it doesn't mess with the money and they want to keep you, you know, the, the, the money is the third rail in the system. Okay. So, you know, the train tracks run on the tracks and then the third rail is where the power runs. So the budget is the power. They want to keep you away from the third rail. And so it's a matter of getting you, you know, what can we get you ginned up and all upset and worked up about that doesn't touch the third rail. And, you know, all the sex stuff is perfect because you can get people really worked up and upset and on and on and on. And generally, it doesn't have very many budget ramifications and it keeps them away from, you know, tax shelters, which you can make really boring while the one percent are getting richer and richer on them. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, we've only got a couple of minutes left. We should really wrap it up. But um, I want to get from you. Uh, just a, what you see as the solution. What would the sequence be of creating um, a more equitable economy that was working for the individual and for the community as much as for the corporations and the government? I mean, where do we need to go from here to make these changes? Okay. So where I want you to start is with your time. Okay, so I always try and get my clients to do a time budget. 
not just a money budget, but a time budget. I want you to go through your time budget and your money budget and find a way to save two hours a week. Are you watching stupid TV for two hours? Okay, make a commitment to stop it. Now I want you to take those two hours and I want you to go out, or let's say you have a relative who calls once really drain you. I want you to commit to stop talking to them right. for more than five minutes. Time, and I want you, Doug, to go do a search, maybe get some friends. You could do like a show and do a circle and really go do it together. Um, go interview the different credit unions and community banks in your area. I have a great article at Solari and some Solari reports on how to find a great local bank. Do some interviews. Find the people you like, feel comfortable, that have the services you need. You're going to create a second account. You're not going to give up your first one, remember? And and go find a bank that you can really trust and have a great relationship with. Yeah. Okay? Now, you put that in place. That's done. So if you, let's say you've invested five to ten hours in doing that. You put that in place. Now two hours you're saving, you could do something else. So maybe – you start researching the local CSAs and see if there's a CSA program from local farmers where you want to buy food. Okay. And you keep going and you keep going in a way that gives you energy. Okay. But at each step, start shifting money out of the criminal economy into the healthy economy, mm-hmm. but, but do it in a way that gives you energy and improves your life because every, every step that gives you more energy, that's more energy in your life to then take the next step. Okay, so I want you to think very practical nuts and bolts on your budget, your time budget and your money budget, and and each time take another step that will radically improve your energy. Okay, anything that's draining, anything that's not trustworthy, if you can get it out of your life, terrific. And don't, you know, let's say you have 20 things in your life that really drain your life. You know, you don't have to choose all 20 at once. Just do one, then do another. Then, you know, I call it turtling. Turtle the drains out of your life. Okay, now, what you will do as you do that, by you changing the percentage of your time and money that is participating in a healthy economy, you make it more possible for everybody else to. Okay, so let's say you and 10 of your friends shift to the local credit union. Now the local credit union has more juice. They can reach out and do more. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm, For sure. And so, right, you're doing things that are very self-interested, but in a way that's better for everybody. You're always looking for the win-win. So I remember there was one wonderful community near you that had a wonderful local bank where a portion of their profits went to a trust that uh, provided scholarships to the local college. And so uh, a lot of people in that community were, com- are, were banking at the big banks. And I said, look, st- the local bank is publicly traded. Let's buy their stock. Let's then announce a campaign to get everybody to move to the local bank. The stock will go up and we'll promise everybody that we'll take our profits and, you know, give half of them to such and such great group or, you know, whatever. But let's do a... You know, let's play it the way the big boys do, but let's do it on a transparent basis. And I couldn't believe it. They could have made a fantastic amount of money. Nobody would do it. Yeah. I was like, right. what's this force field that the big banks have? Ooh, I'm a zombie. I have to be in a big bank or I'll get punished. 
It is actually pretty amazing. And it's very difficult for local governments, too, to break outside of that box. I mean, everybody's always sent their tax money to these big banks and, you know, they just are scared to do something different. I think it's just fear of change, even when the change is incremental and it's so obviously for your benefit and the benefit of the local community. So I you as somebody who's bucked the big banks, I can understand why somebody would be afraid of doing it. But, you know, if a lot of us do it, you yeah. know, it, it, it's a lot easier. Have you ever seen one of my favorite videos on the Internet is the Battle of Kruger? Have you ever seen the Battle of Kruger? Huh. Okay. So it's a group of water water buffalo in Kruger National Park and some naturalists are filming it just when the lions, the predators, you know, the big banks come and grab one of the baby buffalo. And it takes a while for the water buffalo to get up their courage to, you know, to organize together to take on the predators, but they do. And eventually they get the baby buffalo back, but not before the the lions and the crocodiles end up having a fight over this baby water buffalo. (laughs) You think it's absolutely hopeless, but the water buffalo don't give up and they come back and they get the baby buffalo back. And it's a beautiful metaphor for how we have to do with Mr. Global on these issues. Totally. And it works. If you look at, at homeschooling is proof. Uh, you know, whenever you try and mess with the mothers, mothers always win. Yeah, so right. So homeschooling example where the moms absolutely won. The swine flu was an example where the moms absolutely won. I hate to say it, California is the war where the moms are warring over vaccines. But, you know, the the reality is, if you look at what's coming, we have two choices. Um, and, and this was sort of the secret that I had. You know, having been at the top of Wall Street in Washington, I understand the extent to which these folks believe and practice slavery. And if we allow them the technology, you know, if you look at why they canceled the African-American slave trade, they couldn't perfect collateral. But now with digital technology, we're giving them the capacity to, to perfect the, the collateral and we're giving them digital cash and, and all you know, virtual currencies literally to re-implement slavery. Hmm. So you can't, you, you know, Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I assure you, slavery is the most profitable business in the world. And and you couldn't have war without slavery. So uh, I would just really caution everybody. It's worth fighting now because the ramifications, if we don't fight now, you know, I'm not worried about what could happen to me if I fight. I'm worried about what could happen to me if they go to where they want to go and we let them go there unhindered. Yeah, absolutely. I hear you. And I really love that you have been able to break it down to something that individuals can all do. I mean, if everybody stood up, changed their bank, left the criminal economy, focused on uh, shopping locally, participating in the local CSAs, giving their money to you know the, the local businesses that can actually use it and recirculate the money in the community, then we can, we can collectively uh, win this fight. And we don't have to do it on an ideological basis you know, in an ideological playground or an ideological background, we can no, do it by just spending our money wisely in a smart place, in a smart way. Right. The more you gather your own power and don't let yourself, you know, it, it's like having a tapeworm. I'm saying deny the tapeworm food, make your health self healthy instead. Detox the tapeworm and rebuild your immune system, reduce your toxicity, return yourself to health. And you know, it's funny because it sounds like little things, Doug, but I assure you, mm-hmm. 
if everyone does it, a mighty army arises. A mighty army arises. Well, I love it, Catherine. Thank you so much for the work that you do and for that advice. And I hope that people will listen to this and take it and uh, and we can start working on building that army and making it happen because uh, I think we really can make it work. And uh, with people like you out there helping to you know, show us all what's really going on and give us these kinds of, of really um, reinforcing solutions, uh, anything is possible. So thanks again. Do you want to tell people uh, how to get in touch with you or your website? Sure. My website is solari.com, S-O-L-A-R-I.com. And I'm going to make a commitment to you. Mm-hmm. If you alone or with friends, whichever way you wanted to do it, will go search for the right community banker credit union to you. I'm here and you can ask me any question on the journey. Okay. All right. Awesome, Catherine. Thanks a lot. And I just want to let people know that if they like what they're hearing on the shift, they can help me out. Uh, by becoming a patron and keeping this going. That's patreon.com backslash the shift. Uh, join our Facebook page at the shift with Doug McKenty. Uh, join the conversation on Twitter at D McKenty or the is the name of my website. And thank you so much, Catherine. I always love talking to you. I love the way that you present this information and your solutions are so enlightening. Um, I can't wait to see what you do in the future. And I hope you'll come back on the shift uh, sometime, maybe in a couple of months, we can, we can keep this going. Absolutely. Doug, have a wonderful day. Thank you again. Yeah, you too. Take care.